This series discusses suicide and mental health. Please take care while listening and seek support if you need it. Jackie's story haunted me. In the last episode, Jackie's family told me about the events that preceded her death. How she attended her first ever Gwenko retreat in the autumn of 2022. How excited she was to start the meditation course. And how happy she seemed just before setting off. But Jackie drove away from the Gwenka Center in the middle of the course after experiencing severe emotional distress. And a few days later, took her own life. I thought constantly about the series of missed opportunities to intervene and to help her, and how those missed opportunities tormented her parents. I was tormented now too. Were these just misses? Did the Gwenka organization know that meditation could be so dangerous? I carried on researching this story. More and more people from all over the world were contacting me saying they had suffered during Gwenko retreats. I remember one point I just started crying hysterically. Everything was sort of blurry for me. A little voice in me said, this is not real. I started getting increasingly anxious without any real like object to my anxiety. I remember being forced into a hospital bed and then they gave me an injection. This experience like absolutely effed me up, like it flogged me. By now, I believed everything the twins I met at the beginning of this investigation and countless others had told me. I'd heard about the ultimate consequences. But I didn't have any answers yet about what the Gwenka organisation knew and what they might or might not have done with that knowledge. Then, something surprising happened. Two months after I started corresponding with Jackie's mum, She emailed me, asking if I wanted to speak to someone else. Another bereaved parent she had recently been in touch with. This is how I started talking to Chris about what happened to her daughter, Megan. In 2017, Megan took her own life after a psychotic breakdown during her first Gwenka retreat. In the nine weeks she lived after the retreat, she was absolutely petrified. Megan's story is tragic and disturbing, but it is also revealing. It wasn't just that there was another person who, according to their family, lost their life after signing up to a Gwenka retreat. It was what this death meant. Megan took her own life five years before Jackie did the same which means the Gwenka Network was aware of the ultimate risks of intensive meditation for five years before Jackie's death. By the time Jackie signed up to her first retreat, almost nothing within the organization seemed to have changed. I had to find out, why not? From the Special Investigations team at the Financial Times, 
This is the final episode of The Retreat. The Retreat. The Retreat. Meditation Retreat. This surrender was only for 10 days. Now 10 days are over. You are your own master. Episode 4, Another Death. I first spoke to Megan's mum last summer. Chris was keen to talk. She was frustrated by how little had changed since Megan's Gwenka retreat. I wanted people to be able to get help before it got to Megan's conclusions. I didn't want anything from them. I just, I wanted change. Chris had done her utmost to raise awareness of what happened to Megan. She had spoken to Harper's Magazine about Megan's story three years ago, and they had even dedicated an entire article to telling it. This article squarely placed a Gwenka retreat as part of Megan's journey and ultimate suicide. But the Gwenka formula, the one that led many of the people I interviewed to bad outcomes, remained the same. A rigid timetable of intensive meditation, silence, sleep deprivation, reduced calorie intake, Gwenka's disembodied voice warning meditators not to quit. Even worse, centers all over the world remained staffed by volunteers with no mental health training. And they doled out the same advice for participants who became emotionally overwhelmed, to keep meditating. And the Gwenka network has shown no signs of slowing. In fact, the opposite. Waitlists grew longer. The number of centers increased. The Gwenka organization was building a one-size-fits-all meditation empire. All of this concerned Chris. And Chris was hopeful that by speaking to me, something might finally change. She did the interview from Megan's bedroom in her house in Delta, Pennsylvania. It brings me comfort to come in here. This was her space. Megan's room was also still as it was five years ago. Well, when we made her room, she was a young girl, so she picked pink. And then she has black and white accents, like the tiger striped curtains and the tiger stripe wallpaper around the top. Chris described her daughter as someone who was bubbly, happy, and warm. She was a breath of fresh air. She was light. She was energy. She was such a happy child, a happy teenager, and happy adult. She was so adventurous, so loving, so caring. And a detail I found moving was that Megan was also really affectionate with her mum. She had never gone through one of those teenage phases of being embarrassed to hug her parents. Sometimes she still held her mum's hand or sat on her lap. We were very, very close. Chris remembers when Megan signed up to her first Gwenka retreat in Delaware. 
she thought she'd give it a try. She was very excited. At the time, Megan was 25 and occasionally dabbled in light meditation. She wanted to try the retreat because a friend had recommended it to her. She hoped it might be able to help her deal with some mild social anxiety. This was just like many others I had spoken with. And while the Gwenka organization advises against participating in retreats with the sole aim of curing mental or physical problems, it does hint that its courses might help with such issues. A Q&A on its site asks, can Vipassana cure physical or mental diseases? The response states, many diseases are caused by our inner agitation. If the agitation is removed, the disease may be alleviated or disappear. Chris's biggest concern before Megan set off was that her daughter would get bored. Megan was a big outdoorsy type. She loved rock climbing and whitewater kayaking and caving. Chris didn't think sitting and meditating for 10 hours a day would be Megan's cup of tea. But ultimately, she supported her daughter's decision. I didn't realize there were dangers. I mean, I just thought, geez, your legs are going to get cramped. It might be boring. I, I don't, you know what I mean? I didn't think there were dangers. I had no idea. I had no idea. Chris wouldn't have thought to look up dangers. And Megan probably wouldn't have thought to either. Because on the main Gwenka site, there's a pretty clear answer as to whether or not this can be harmful. Its Q&A includes the question, can Vipassana make people mentally unbalanced? The organization's response is clear-cut. It says, no. Vipassana teaches you to be aware and equanimous. That is balanced, despite all the ups and downs of life. So Megan headed off to the retreat centre in Claymont, Delaware, in her truck. The centre was a two-hour drive from her parents' home. It was March 2017. Megan was meant to drive herself back again ten days later. But on the ninth day of the retreat, Chris got a strange phone call from a worker at the centre. So it was on a Saturday night, and they called me, and they just said, oh, well, Megan's... um." Megan's a little confused. Uh, you might need to come get her tomorrow. And I said, well, that's fine. What's wrong with her? And they said, oh, she's just a little confused. I don't I don't think she should be driving. I mean, they were so calm. Chris was a little bit concerned. But she said at this point, she wasn't massively worried. They didn't give her any sense that Chris should be panicking. So Chris agreed to pick up Megan the next day. But the following morning, she got another phone call from the retreat at 4am. This time, she knew something was seriously wrong. They asked her to drive to the centre as quickly as possible. They were blunt and insistent. Chris woke up her husband and Megan's sister, and together they set off for Claymont. When they got to the retreat, Staff were waiting for them outside the centre's gates. They made me follow them in and park my car, and we walked into a private room. And they said that Megan isn't acting right, and for safety reasons, maybe just one of us should go in at a time. 
for safety reasons. Chris had no idea what could possibly have gone wrong. And the retreat volunteers did not prepare her for what happened next. Chris was the first person to enter the room with Megan. She says it was a frightening scene. So I went in first. And she was not my Megan. She was petrified. Petrified. She couldn't believe I was there, and she wouldn't let me touch her because she thought she would cause bad things to happen if she touched me because she had done something horrible. Something had changed in Megan, suddenly and drastically. I just can't even describe what it was like. This was not the child that I knew. She was so scared. Chris tried to tell Megan that she needed to come home with her, that it was time to leave. But Megan refused. She didn't want to leave. She kept saying she was supposed to die there. She was supposed to die there. She's horrible. We had to practically carry her out. When you came out of the room after you'd first seen her, what did you say to the staff who were present and what did they say to you? I said, I, I, what happened? What happened to her? They, they had no answers. They had no answers. They were completely at a loss. Chris says the retreat volunteers just stood there. They had nothing to say. No answers and no assistance. Chris, her husband Steve and Megan's sister managed to get Megan out of the centre. Chris drove away with Megan and her sister in the back while Steve followed in Megan's truck. Megan's behaviour on that return journey was unlike anything they had seen before. It was scary She wanted out of the car, and she thought we were trying to kill her. And then she was looking for things to kill herself, and she was shoving the blanket down her throat. At one point, they stopped for a bathroom break. Megan asked for a drink. And I said, okay, babe, what would you like? And she said, chocolate milk. So I got her a little thing of chocolate milk. And she looked at me, and she looked at it, and you knew she was thinking something. I don't know what she was thinking, and then she guzzled the milk, guzzled it, guzzled it. It was gone in a second. She thought I poisoned it. I found out later that she was supposed to die, so I had to poison her milk. That's why she guzzled it. It was just, it was so odd. She was completely psychotic, completely. And I knew she was psychotic. So I rushed her to the The hospital that I knew had a psychiatric ward. The family managed to get Megan to the hospital. At 1am in the morning, Megan was still beside herself. Nothing seemed to bring her back to reality. She kept repeating strange, chilling ideas. 
she didn't die, so that meant the universe was going to die. She kept saying it over and over. She did something terrible. She did something terrible. And I kept saying, baby, what? Did, what? You you were too good. You couldn't have done anything terrible. And then she said, I killed the universe. I said, baby, baby, you're, you're not God. You can't do that. And she was, if you could have seen her face, she was so scared. Just so so scared. She still didn't want me to touch her or to hug me or hold me. She thought she was evil. She was pale. She was scared. She just looked like a, a, a ghost floating around that place. The description of Megan's behaviour during this period chilled me. Not just because it was horrifying in its own right, but because it was so similar to how the twins' parents described their daughters after they started meditating intensively at Gwenka retreats. The twins' parents even used the same words. Catatonic. Ghost-like. Disheveled. Scared. Megan was finally discharged back to her family after nine days. She had been diagnosed as psychotic catatonic with psychotic episodes of unknown origin. Chris says Megan was still very unwell when she came home. She was deeply paranoid, particularly of medical professionals, and continued to show signs of psychosis. Chris took a leave of absence from work to look after her and tried to persuade Megan to attend medical appointments. But nothing seemed to ground Megan again. She was absolutely petrified. Um, she didn't want to be with family. She didn't want to see family. She didn't want to see friends. She didn't want to go enjoy her activities any longer. You could feel her pulling away from you, from us. Over the next eight weeks, the family struggled to help Megan. They didn't know where to turn. Chris sees this as a big failing by the Gwenka Center to this day. She had so many questions. Did they ever go through this before? How did they help anybody else? I, I just didn't expect them to just turn it off. Just, oh, she's out of here. It's over. I don't know what I expected, to tell you the truth. Just some help, some understanding, some guidance, where to go. What do I do? Who do I talk to? I got nothing. Megan even emailed the retreat center, asking for help. Chris shared the emails with me. In one email, sent on May 4th, Megan told the center she had been in a psychiatric ward and that she was having a difficult time getting back to normal life. She asked for an appointment with the teacher who oversaw her retreat. And she apologised for, as she put it, any disturbance I may have caused during my last few days there. Someone at the centre responded that day, saying they'd forwarded her email on and signing off cheerfully with a word used in meditation circles to signal love and kindness. Hi Megan, 
forwarded your email. Take care of yourself with Meta. A few weeks later, Megan sent a follow-up email asking the centre again for help. My mind lives in a continuous time loop, reliving it over and over, she wrote. I know the whole point of the practice is letting things go, but I'm having a very hard time. I think it's a sign that I need to give up my life for a more pure one. How would I go about doing that? Someone at the centre again responded on the same day, saying they were sorry she was still having trouble and that they'd forwarded Megan's email onto the teacher. The email was again signed off, with lots of meta. But there was never any response from the teacher in Megan's inbox, according to her parents. Nine weeks after she left the Guenca Centre, Megan took her own life. She left several notes. One of them, scrawled on an old bank statement, read, I remember what I did at the retreat. I finally got that memory. I can't live with myself anymore. Another one, written on the back of an envelope, read, Mum, you are my favourite person in the world. I love you so much. I am so, so sorry, but I couldn't keep running from what was supposed to have happened. I couldn't function. Chris, prior to her participating in this retreat, had you ever had kind of severe concerns for her mental health? Never. Never. I never had. She she could get anxious, but can't we all? Social situations would make her anxious. Um, never psychiatric issues like this. And I know in my soul that if she didn't do the retreat, that this would have never happened. After speaking to Megan's mum, I was struck by the similarities between what she and Jackie's mum had experienced. How they weren't aware of any underlying mental health issues with their daughters. How they weren't overly concerned about their daughters attending the retreat, as there wasn't any indication that something like this was possible. How their very first phone call with the retreat centres had been oddly calm. How the disaster unfolding for their daughters only became apparent 24 hours later. How both of their daughters said they felt responsible for something terrible and intangible. How their daughters' stories ended so tragically. And how both grieving mothers were treated by the Gwenka organisation when they were completely consumed by grief in the weeks after losing their daughters. That's next, after the break. Like Jackie's mum, Megan's mum also ended up hearing from people affiliated with the Gwenka organisation in the wake of Megan's death. She received two separate notes, 
The first note was strange. It was anonymous. It came in several parts. It had been typed out on a piece of paper and then cut up before being posted to Chris. It looked like a clue being left by someone trying to mask their identity. Chris still doesn't know who sent it, but the author appeared to be a concerned volunteer who had worked at the centre during the retreat Megan attended. The person wrote that Megan had been extremely fearful that she should have received medical attention and she should have been discouraged from meditating further. But this hadn't happened. The note gave a clear indication that volunteers at the centre had some awareness that something had gone wrong, that Gwenka insiders knew the situation wasn't handled correctly. We've had a producer read the email. When a person encounters even a minor difficulty, access to emergency services is supposed to be given. Some say it's negligence. Some say it's malpractice. Some say she was mishandled unintentionally. But then Chris received a second note. It came from a man named Barry Lapping. His message was somewhat formal and polite and offered his condolences. But he also made a strange offer. He said, I was not the teacher of Megan's course, but I may be able to help explain Vipassana meditation. He provided his contact details and offered to meet with Megan's parents in the month after her death. Chris did not take him up on that offer. Oddly enough, before Chris shared the note from Barry with me, he was someone who was already on my list of people to talk to. Several other sources had mentioned Barry's name as someone who might be helpful, as someone who knew the Gwenka organisation inside out. Barry and his wife, Kate, appeared to be the lead teachers at the centre Megan attended in Delaware. Barry has been practising Vipassana meditation, as taught by SN Gwenka, for the best part of 50 years. Within the nebulous structure of the Gwenka network, he seems to be one of the most senior and best-informed figureheads in the US. By this point, I knew the organisation was aware of at least two suicides among participants, and of many other individuals who had experienced psychosis during or after a Gwenka retreat. I had so many questions for the people running these courses. Barry seemed like a good place to start. Did he accept that intensive meditation could be harmful for some people? That the structure of the Gwenka retreats made meditation-related challenges more likely? And what was the organisation doing to minimise these risks? I did get through to Barry, and we ended up having a long phone call. But, in the end, Barry decided he did not want to participate in this podcast. He sent me an email after our call. We had a producer read some of it. Of course, if you want to reflect on the millions of people who have benefited from this technique, I have no problem with that. Perhaps at a later date, after your initial podcast, we can talk about the benefits of this technique and how it can help our society, which so desperately needs help. 
It is good for people to know that there is a way out of their suffering. It was a strange response, given I had just highlighted to him the very real suffering my sources said they had been through. Just like the Q&As on the Gwenka website, he seemed fixated on the supposed benefits of the courses and unwilling to acknowledge the potential risks. I didn't just want to hear from Barry. He's not responsible for the whole Gwenka operation. The organisation has many heads. The power doesn't just lie in one place. There are lead teachers at each Gwenka centre, and the centres appear to fall under the leadership of one or two individuals in every country where the network operates. So I tried contacting the people running the centre in Merritt, Canada, that Jackie attended, Jenny and Bob Jeffs. Hi, you've reached Jenny. I'm not here to take your call, so leave a message and I'll call you back. And I emailed over my questions, 28 in total. They had, essentially, no comment, because, they said, they are bound by rules regarding student confidentiality. But they added, We will say this. Although the experience of hundreds of thousands of people who have successfully completed retreats since the early 1970s is overwhelmingly positive, these courses are not for everyone. We take the safety and well-being of every student in our care extremely seriously. Bob said the center examines the suitability of applicants before retreats and tries to dissuade people who aren't ready. He added that they regularly review their processes to create a safe experience for all attendees and that teacher training is continually improved. Back when I received the email from a troubled father about his twin daughters, nearly 12 months ago, I had no idea whether or not what they were telling me was credible. Their story seemed almost fantastical. Meditation could break your mind? Initially, I wasn't convinced. But all these months later, it seemed undeniable to me that there was a serious problem here. A problem that the Gwenka organization seemed reluctant to even acknowledge, let alone address. So reluctant, in fact, that the people I spoke to who worked through their meditation-related illness feel that they only survived due to chance. This isn't the kind of pattern these kinds of stories fall into. Usually at the special investigations team at the Financial Times, when we go to organisations with serious questions about potential failings, action is taken. The groups we examine vow to review their processes, appoint law firms to independently investigate, and promise to change for the better. I thought the Gwenka organization would take a similar position, but it refused to fit the mold. It didn't even want to engage. Usually, money, greed, and power sit at the heart of these kinds of stories. But again, that didn't really work. The organization seemed to sustain itself on the relatively modest donations it collects. Financial enrichment was not on the cards here. 
What this story is, it seems to me, is about a growing number of untrained people playing at the margins of some dangerous forces, all under the seemingly innocuous guise of self-improvement. The Gwenka Network's ultimate goal seems to be maximum proliferation at any cost. And its supporters genuinely see its purpose as altruistic, doing good. Sure, the rise of wellness and meditation have brought a lot of people positive outcomes. But that quest to gain more converts comes at a price when you refuse to acknowledge any negative outcomes are possible. And I've thought a lot about why this is. Why does an organization whose very purpose is to improve people's lives bury its head in the sand when presented with evidence that in some cases it is harming people? I don't have an answer to that, but I do know that the improvements my sources would like to see aren't difficult. In many cases, they wouldn't even cost anything. Things like informing people before they sign up to a course that there may be risks. It has a responsibility to be clear about the potential downsides of intensive meditation. It will be a bit like the sort of the warning slip in a package of medication. Training the volunteers better to spot and deal with emerging mental health issues among attendees. They need to have a certain level of emotional intelligence and they need to monitor each individual meditator much more closely. Better yet, making sure there are formally trained mental health practitioners on site. Better regulations, more qualified people, trained people. It's not a joke. It should be taken seriously. Potentially altering the structure of the course so that the sensory deprivation is less intense. More food, more sleep, more physical movement would all help. I don't think 10 hours of meditation, I think that's too much. I get why they're doing it, but I think I think six hours a day, you would still be able to learn the technique and you would have some time to rest and maybe you can talk with the teacher more often. But perhaps most importantly, the network needs to introduce proper emergency protocols so that if someone truly spirals, there is a clear action plan to manage that and to help that individual's friends or family once they've left the centre. Duty of care to participants shouldn't stop the second they drive out of a Gwenka Centre's gates. People are into meditation, that's fine and well. I just didn't want anybody to get hurt like Megan did. Donuts from upstairs. Oh, thank you. I'm just going to be selfish and go for it. Eight months after I first met with the twins, I caught up with them both again to see what had changed over the year. Okay, let me just pull up my questions. I guess, first and foremost, um, how are you at the moment? I'm very well. The identical twin sisters, Emily and Sarah, are now in their late 20s, having finally parted ways with the Gwenka organization in late 2021. Here's Emily. It was really quite acute distress, like um, realising that 
my mind had been really damaged and that I this thing that I thought was like my savior and I thought was everything in my life was actually just a hoax that I never wanted and I just started that process of kind of re rewiring my brain because once I stopped practicing I had my mental freedom back. The twins spent the better part of their 20s deeply involved in the Gwenka network volunteering on retreat after retreat working for free and funding themselves through odd jobs basically dedicating their lives to the group. They both say they remain extremely traumatised by their involvement with the Gwenka network and that their recovery is ongoing. Sarah is upfront about the fact they both feel pretty damaged. I found it hard to kind of integrate back into normal life and back into like normal society. And I only recently have felt like I'm actually able to live normally again. So it's basically my whole 20s have lost... <laughs> I have felt extremely angry. I felt extremely violated at times. I felt like I didn't consent to this. I didn't consent to having being caused these problems that I never had before. I didn't consent to losing years and years of my life. I didn't consent to my mind being intervened with and changed and altered the way that it was. I was never told that would happen. I felt at times like I'm recovering from a form of abuse and... I'm very lucky that I've had the kind of therapeutic environment and support I've needed. But it is very hard to recover from those kinds of feelings and experiences. And I feel really sorry for anyone who has to to go through it also. Emily says, at times, she feels like she's barely holding it together. There have been low points where I'm like, it's over. Like, I've been suicidal at various points in the last couple of years since I left. Emily is seeing a doctor for chronic pain in her leg, which she believes stems from years of intensively meditating while sitting down. They both struggle with insomnia, anxiety, and require several forms of medical support to survive. In short, the twins are not back to normal. They're not okay. But... With a lot of professional help, they are slowly mending. Their involvement with the Gwenka network has been difficult for Sarah and Emily's relationship at times, but they now live close to each other and have gone back to playing music together. They're in a folk band. So I play cello and sing, and my sister plays the guitar and sings, and there are people from all over playing all kinds of weird and wonderful instruments. They sent me a piano demo of one of their songs. It's called Some People Say. The twins don't want others to go through what they did. And they told me they've been in regular correspondence with the lead teachers in Herefordshire, trying to persuade them to change their approach. To convince them that more is needed to protect the welfare of people participating in these courses. And it's a live issue. In the latest financial year, nearly 2,000 people attended 10-day courses in Herefordshire alone. Sarah emailed Renette Brown, lead teacher at the Herefordshire site, in October asking if she had, quote, 
any updates regarding implementing safety measures have Vipassana centres. Sarah really wanted the Gwenka organisation to provide newcomers with the concept of informed consent, letting them know before they started a retreat that there can be downsides to intensive meditation. Brunette's reply was blunt. Hello. We've been discussing whether there is any extra wording that might be helpful, but as yet we haven't concluded whether it is even necessary or needed. Best wishes, Renette. I decided to try Renette, who runs the centre with her husband, Kirk, myself. Like the lead teachers in Canada, the husband and wife team in Herefordshire also asked to see my questions before weighing up whether or not to speak to me. They also opted out. Abuse of power doesn't look the same everywhere. Sometimes, abuse of power can come from a collective failure to acknowledge something, from not accepting responsibility, from doing nothing. And the Gwenka organisation, it seems, is choosing no response, is not accepting responsibility, is doing nothing to rectify things with the power it most certainly has. At the centre of this, there are still people who have lost their lives and families who are left grieving without answers. My sources hoped that by speaking to me, it would propel the organisation to change. But in the absence of that, they just wanted the word to be out there for others to know what they might be getting themselves into, to stop others from encountering harm. They want you to know, if you're thinking about signing up to a retreat, just be careful. Your mind is a precious thing. It's a very brainwashing, extremely mentally altering thing to do, and and once your mind's been altered in that way, it's hard to judge things clearly. It it is powerful. And because it's powerful, it's dangerous. I felt like the foundation of my mind had just been, like, stripped away. I didn't know what to do, where to go, who to talk to. This grief, this blanket of grief, will be with us forever. But it's pulled back a little bit to say, hey, what do we do to, uh, uh, to make sure that we can be part of something that that prevents us from happening again. The Retreat is the first season from Untold, a new Financial Times investigative podcast. It is produced by the Financial Times with Goat Rodeo. The series lead producers are Rebecca Seidel, and Persis Love. Reporting by me, Madison Marriage. Writing by me, Megan Adolski and Rebecca Seidel. Story editing from Ian Enright. Executive producers for the Financial Times are Topher Forhez and Cheryl Bromley. Executive producers for Goat Radio are Ian Enright and Megan Adolski. Mixing, editing and sound design by Rebecca Seidel. The series theme is Everyone Alive Wants Answers by Colleen. Additional music from Ian Enright, Rebecca Seidel, and Blue Dot Sessions. 
Editorial and production assistance from Paul Laflalo, Joshua Gabbert Doyon, Petros Guillompassis, Andrew Georgiades, Siddharth Venkataramakrishnan, and Laura Clark. Thanks also to Alistair Mackey. And special thanks to my colleagues who shared their advice and wisdom for this series, including Rula Kalaf, Matt Garahan, Matt Vella, Emma Jacobs, Antonia Cundy, Isabel Berwick, Miles Johnson, Paul Murphy, Nigel Hansen, and Kesawa Hennessy. If you've been affected by anything in this series, there are some useful resources highlighted in the show notes. And if you want to share a tip in relation to this podcast, please get in touch with me, Madison, at madison.marriage at ft.com. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to the many sources who shared their very personal stories with me.